I am super grateful for James coming and preaching the last couple of Sundays in the book of Acts, the, the fourth chapter. If you weren't here, if you missed it, all of the, our sermons are updated on the RamseyCreek.org website. You can go and listen to those. As I was going back and preparing for today, I was listening to those, and James did an excellent job in laying the groundwork for what courage in the face of opposition looks like in the life of a Christian. These early apostles that we see in Acts chapter 4, and specifically Peter and John, these guys were thrown in prison for the night, remember, while the religious leaders tried to figure out, what do we do with these guys? What do we do? James mentioned that the the apostles, they didn't fight back, they didn't scream, they didn't holler, and they didn't do silly things that you see some people do today who feel like they're being treated unfairly. They didn't do any of that stuff. These Christians trusted the Lord and gracefully endured under pressure. And they set an incredible example for us thousands of years later. This doesn't mean, though, that they just rolled over and acted like everything was normal and this was life as usual. When Peter is given the opportunity to respond, as we'll see today, he does so with authority and with boldness and conviction. And as typical for Peter, he doesn't beat around the bush when he's responding to the people that arrested him. And if you really look at what we're going to read this morning, you're going to see he actually, he was still pouring it on. Not antagonizing necessarily, but just just giving the truth, even though he knew it wouldn't be received well. His conviction was still to, to be honest and truthful. See, if you look back at verse 2, we found out that these Sadducees were greatly annoyed. Hence the downward eyebrows in Jason's picture. They were upset. They were annoyed. Why? Well, it tells us specifically. Why? Verse 2, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. That was the reason why they were so upset, why they had them handcuffed and put in prison overnight. The Sadducees would be greatly annoyed at the preaching of a resurrection because they didn't believe it, as Jason said. They denied it. They denied the afterlife at all. Once this life was over, you cease to exist. Your soul, your body, everything is just done. Blackness. You don't even know you're not existing because it doesn't matter because you don't have any idea of what's going on. The Sadducees, a little bit of background on them. This was the group that were connected. They were Jews pretty well and connected with pretty much everything going on in the temple in Jerusalem. They had high seats of power and in the priesthood and held the majority of the seats in the Sanhedrin, which was kind of the religious ruling uh, body of the day. James mentioned it last week when he said that this was really the same group that condemned Jesus to death. The same group. They were probably more politically aligned in Rome and in, uh, in, in that area than they were spiritually aligned, however. Um, and they, they did hold the books of Moses in high regard, but they denied the existence of a spiritual realm at all. There's no resurrection of the dead. When you die, your soul ceases to exist. There's no angels. There's no demons. There's no life after death. This world is all that there is. And so the physical things were important to them, vastly important to them. This world is all there is. Does that sound familiar? 
Does it sound like much of our culture today? It's still uh, the way that a lot of people live their lives. But that doesn't square with what Jesus taught, does it? Jesus all the time was talking about the kingdom of heaven. He was talking about the spiritual realm and, and his followers, Peter, Paul specifically, would go on to tell us more about the spiritual life and the spiritual realm. Jesus was always talking about this sort of thing. But since these early church leaders were teaching the same things, Peter and John were teaching the same things that Jesus was teaching about his own resurrection, you can imagine why the Sadducees were irritated with them, why they were mad, because their political power was at stake. Their society, their power in society was on the line. So when Peter in verse 12 makes this daring claim that there is salvation in no one else, there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You can imagine why they wanted to shut them up. Why they wanted them to be quiet. This is not the message we want these people who are under our care and rule to hear. And that's the stage for this first major conflict in the early church. And that sets the stage for what we want to read together in Acts chapter 4 this morning. Follow along and we'll read verses 13 through 22. And then we'll pray together. Acts chapter 4 verse 13. And now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them as evidence to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Verse 18. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them. Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Let's pray. Lord, we don't want to be the kind of people that think that this life is all that there is because we believe your word and Christ's teaching and all throughout scripture, there is evidence of life after death, of something beyond just when we breathe our last here. And so what we study this morning and what we think through and discuss, Lord, it, it affects how we go out and live as soon as we walk out these doors. Because if there is nothing after this, then this life is all we have. And we should just go and try to get ahead and be happy. But if there's more, if there's more than just what this earth contains, then that should change how we live. And so help us to see this and to believe it and to then go and, and live it, Lord. And we would do it so that people would See Jesus for who he is and put their faith in him. He is the only name upon which we can be saved. And so help us in our hearts to cry out to him, to call out to him and be saved today. In his name we pray. Amen.
if you think about the state of the church at this point in history, it's relatively small, right? Now, I, I know we've, we've just been informed that there have been thousands of people that have come to faith, just brand new, maybe a few days, a few weeks old in the faith, but it's growing, but in relative to the Sanhedrin and, and all of the old, the old ways, this is a relatively small group still. Small in number, at least. The, the leadership was, they trained under Jesus for a few years, but uh, some of the guys in the Sanhedrin had been there their whole lives. So we've got a relatively untrained early church leadership here in the book of Acts. The, this group was not a militant group. They were not taking up arms to go against Rome or even against the Jews in power. They weren't physically fighting back. We saw that as they went to prison overnight. They were being opposed by institutions that had been around for a long time. We're talking hundreds and hundreds of years. Interesting, Luke, in just these first six verses, mentions 11 different groups of people who oppose the followers of Jesus. Look at this with me. There's the priests, there's Sadducees, there's rulers, elders, scribes, there's family of the high priest, the captain of the temple, Annas, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander. All of these people had a hand in opposing the followers of Jesus, and many of them captured them, and they were making this statement. When they grabbed them and forced them into prison, they were saying what you can imagine. They're saying, we have the power, guys. We have the authority, we have the means and your freedom is in our hands. Don't forget it. I think that's part of the message that they were trying to send here. Don't forget it. But the reality is the truth cannot be stopped or silenced no matter how it makes people feel. The truth cannot be silenced no matter how it makes people feel. Because the truth does what? It sets people free. The truth sets people free. The gospel cannot be stopped regardless of who or what comes against it because it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Truth can't be silenced. The gospel can't be stopped. And so the power plays, the threats, the intimidation against these early Christians were all ineffective. They didn't amount to a hill of beans. In fact... As you'll see as we continue on in the book of Acts, more people believed, not fewer. This, the, the Sadducees' plan backfires. I heard a pastor say, in the Western world, he's talking about us, Christians rarely face persecution. Satan instead has attacked us with worldliness, selfish pride, status, and something that we see in churches, especially today, is this need for acceptance. The martyr can impress unbelievers with his courage and faith, but the self-centered, compromising Christian is despised by the world, he says. Now, to be sure, the world is not who we're aiming to impress here. But even unbelievers know a fraud when they see one. The rulers and peoples and uh, the people and elders, as what's listed here, they recognized, though... Something important about Peter and John and, and some of these other followers of Jesus. 
They recognized that their boldness and spiritual insight came from being with him, came from being with Jesus. In John 7, the Jews are similarly, or similarly, whichever way it is, similarly, dumbfounded at Jesus' teaching. If you look at chapter 7, verse 15, they say about Jesus, they say, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? How is this guy so smart in the scriptures? This doesn't make sense, they observed. Peter and John, I think, reminded them of Jesus. But unfortunately, for the religious leaders here, that wasn't a compliment. Now, there were a few disciples who had a decent education. We could think of maybe Luke as a doctor, maybe Matthew as a tax collector and some others. They maybe had a pretty good education, but most of these guys didn't have any kind of higher education at all, much less a formal education. We talked in our Sunday school time about the founding fathers, about how many of them were in the same boat. They didn't have uh, this Ivy League background, if you would. These guys were just blue-collar, hard, everyday workers. They were salt-of-the-earth people. And I think that that played in to what irritated the Sanhedrin. And the Sadducees, tradition, prestige, status, upbringing, these were things that were really important to them. They, pri- they prided themselves on them. And now you've got this, this group of uneducated simpletons preaching and speaking with power and authority in ways that they've not even seen among their own ranks. And it's bugging them. It's bothering them. The religious elite's emphasis on education really, we see, was just idol worship because it was more valuable to them than knowing Jesus. I fear it can be the same today. Now, don't get me wrong. We need to give our children proper education so that they're prepared for the rest of their lives. But I I fear that our emphasis on education can also be misguided like this. Jesus didn't hold classes on economics or mathematics, or politics, but you know what? He really taught his followers how to be good stewards of God's money. He taught those who followed him frequently about being content in all circumstances. He demonstrated how they ought to treat leaders over them. Jesus taught about how to live this life in preparation of the next. So Christian parents, it's right for us to emphasize education But if we want to emphasize education for our children, let it be an education in knowing Jesus over everything else. That's what impacted the people this day. That these men had been with Jesus. They knew it. It was a stark contrast to them because because they said, these guys are uneducated. They're fishermen. How do they know more than us? It had to have been because of Jesus. That's what impacted them. Can the same be said of us? Can that be said of us? Man, they've been with Jesus. I can tell. Moms and dads, is that what we really value? And does what we really value come across then in how we spend our time and what we do as families? Because these guys were ordinary, everyday, common people. That's the word that he uses, common They weren't wealthy. They weren't 
formally educated. They weren't influential. They certainly weren't trained in public speaking. But they'd spent time with Jesus. And they spoke with conviction. And that impacted the world more than anything else. It's been said that God is looking for ordinary people to do extraordinary work. Ordinary people to do extraordinary work. Because that's what the task is that we've been given. It's extraordinary work. But we're just ordinary people, aren't we? Paul talks about that. He says, there are not many wise among you. Not many with all this education background or high standing in society. But we've been called to extraordinary work. Now, verse 13, the leaders figured out that Peter and John's boldness came from their time with Jesus. But instead of asking the apostles, what must we do to be saved? Remember, that was the question that was asked after Peter's first sermon. Well, what must we do to be saved? They didn't ask that question here. Instead, they ask, what must we do to stay in control? They didn't ask, G- they didn't ask Peter and, and John that question. They asked that amongst themselves. What must we do to stay in control? You can see this in verse 15 through 18. They, they send these guys out. They huddle together. They confer together. And that's, that's what they're, they're evaluating. They're not evaluating Peter's sermon and the impact it should have in their lives. They're not asking each other how to be forgiven for crucifying an innocent man. They're only worried about damage control. They just want to stop the news about Jesus from spreading any more among the people. Think about it, you guys. They saw all the same signs. They saw all the same wonders. They heard all the same convicting preaching as the thousands of people who repented and believed, but their minds were set on earthly things. Things like influence, prestige, power. For me, it's painful to look back at this story and see the hearts of these religious leaders because they refused forgiveness, freedom, peace, and joy that comes from the message of the gospel that these guys were preaching about. They feared losing power more than they feared God. They willingly gave up eternal life for temporary control. Don't make the same mistake that they did. Don't spend your time, and I would say don't waste your life, yearning and aiming for control and miss God. Because you can, because these guys did. This response is heartbreaking in my eyes. But it's not surprising or unexpected for somebody who thinks too highly of himself. These guys were so focused on what they needed to do to get ahead and what they needed to do to stay ahead that whoever stood in their way now is the enemy. You get in the way of my success, now you're the enemy. And we see that here. Peter and John are preaching salvation and resurrection in Christ Jesus. And these guys are saying, whoa, 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 whoa. That is not the message we want people to hear. That does not keep us in our status here. Now, they knew that they couldn't just hold them in jail forever. I think they thought about it here, though. They considered it, didn't they? They wanted to shut them up. Why? Why did they want to, but why did they know that they couldn't? Verse 21 tells us 
They knew that they couldn't just tell, just keep them in prison because of the people. So there was an influence of the people over them that just reminds us of who their God was. It wasn't the one true God. It was the influence and their standing amongst the people. They desperately just wanted to maintain authority. And so that's the lens that they made all their decisions through. But they couldn't deny what happened. And they don't even try it. I think that's interesting about this whole text. Look at verse 14. It says, seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. They couldn't deny it. In fact, that's said in verse 16. They said that a notable sign has been performed through them as evident to all, and we can't deny it. But even in their sinful state, these religious elite had figured something out that we need to still figure out. Look at verse 17. they, They said... Well, well, let's warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they're impressed by the passion and the boldness of the apostles, but they figured out that the power to heal and the authority to teach the way that these guys were doing came not from them, but from someone else. It came from Jesus. They'd figure that, 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 that out. But instead of seeking the truth about him, what do they try to do? They try to bury the truth, just like they bury Jesus. But that's hard to do when you've got a 40-plus-year-old man who'd been crippled his whole life standing right there. And, and he didn't just stand, did he? We, we found out his, when he was healed, he got up and started running and leaping and praising God. So it's hard to deny that something incredible had happened here. They knew that they couldn't do it. The fact that he was standing up was living proof of the power of the name of Jesus. And it was living proof that there was power for salvation in his name. So the religious elite here, they're misguided. They're even malicious, but they're not dumb. They recognize that Jesus is the key to the Christian's witness and power. They recognize that, and we need to recognize that still. Jesus is the key to the Christian's witness and power. This takes us to the interaction in verses 18 through 20 that I really want to just kind of focus on in the time we have. It says that they called them, so they're done with their little conference. They had sent them out. They had their little conference. What do we do? How do we deal with this? What's the damage control plan here? Bring them back in. They think they've got a plan. They bring them back in. And it says that they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Uh, It's interesting to me that they weren't worried one bit about them teaching and preaching in their own name. Only in the name of Jesus. Now, it's interesting too, they don't actually use Jesus' name. If you look back at verse 17, they just, when they're talking amongst themselves, they just say, well, let's tell them not to preach anymore in this name. But when Luke records it, he says, uh, they're talking about Jesus, the name of Jesus. Peter and John surely know who they're talking about. And so this is how they answer in verses 19 and 20. They say, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Let me point something out here. Up until this point, You've got Christians 
operating under the authority and power of God, right? So they are preaching faithfully. They are teaching boldly. They're speaking respectfully. And they submit even peacefully to wrong imprisonment. That's all happened so far. But now something has changed. Now they're being ordered to disobey a direct order from their Savior. All right, what did Jesus say? Matthew 8, 28, 18. You guys are familiar with the Great Commission. Jesus instructed them, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. They were told to go and to teach and make disciples. Even in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will be my witnesses here and to the ends of the earth. Jesus had given clear instruction on what their job was to do, but now the religious elite are saying, no, 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 speak no more in this name. Uh Uh-oh. Now we have a problem, right? We've got a dilemma. We've got a situation. We have an established authority in the land in direct opposition with God's authority. What do they do? If you haven't noticed, there's going to be some overlap and precedent in our own lives here. Okay? What did they do? Well, mind you, I think Peter and John are still absolutely filled with the Spirit at this point. And here's how they respond. They say, we can't help but talk about what we've seen and heard. We cannot stop. We cannot not talk about Jesus. They say, if if that's a problem for you, if you think it's right that we should listen to man rather than God, well, that's something you guys are going to have to decide for yourselves. But we're not going to do it. It seems to me, at least, that if they were, if there was a way to comply to the authority of the, of the authority over them, that they were willing to do it. Remember, they went to prison overnight. They didn't put up a fight. They were willing to do that, even though it was uncomfortable, even though it was painful, maybe even certainly undesirable. They were already thrown in prison, but there was, there was worse to come, for sure. As Christians, I don't, I don't think we ought to be looking for opportunities to shake our fists in the face of authority over us. But if the choice is put before us of obeying God or man, you go with God. We have to. And when we go with God, we need to be also willing to trust him as we bear the consequences that follow. Think back in the Old Testament, there were three Jewish friends who were prepared to burn in the fires of Babylon rather than betray their Lord. Daniel was willing to be literally ripped apart by lions rather than give up his time of prayer with God. The Sadducees and the religious rulers, they feared loss of power, but Peter and John feared God. I heard a story about a young soldier who was standing at attention during a drill parade, and there were spectators around and he waved this soldier waved at one of the spectators well as you can imagine uh, the drill sergeant marched right up to him got him got in his face and and said don't ever do that again stay in formation well as they're they're doing their their thing this same soldier waves a second time they get back to the barracks and this drill sergeant 
gets right up in his face and he says, I, I told you, I instructed you not to do that again. Why did you do it? Aren't you afraid of me? And he said, the story goes that this soldier said, well, yes, sir, I am, but you don't know my mother. <laughs> See what I'm saying? He was waving at his mom. The drill instructor was intimidating. He could have made this, this guy's life pretty miserable for a while. But there was someone that this young man feared more than the drill sergeant. Uh, the old saying is true. When you fear God, you have nothing else to fear. Look at verse 21. This verse says that they, they just couldn't find a way to punish them and not make themselves look bad. So they threatened them some more and let them go. So in this instance, the Christians' civil disobedience resulted in a verbal lashing. But it won't be long and the persecution against the Christians will turn from a stern talking to, to threats, to beatings, to death. But even in those moments, what do these brave believers say? If you skip forward to chapter 5, verse 29, and they're in another sticky situation, a similar situation, and Peter answers, he says, look guys, we must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. Stephen, in chapter 7, verse 60, just before he dies, he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. I think this is important for us to see and keep in perspective because even their righteous rebellion against an evil authority is dominated by the example of Christ, the love of Christ. There are situations where we have to really pay attention and evaluate, okay, Am I being told to do something that goes against the direct order of, of my Savior? Or is this a preference thing? There's some situations that we've really got to work through as Christians and as a church together. There are situations where civil disobedience is called for and right. But even still, even in these moments, these Christians' lives and examples were affected and they were demonstrating the example of Jesus, the love of Christ to them and in them and proclaiming it to others meant more to these Christians than their very lives. The people were all out, it says, praising God because the man who was over 40 years old and been lame that long, he was healed. This is a cause of rejoicing for many people there but this religious council did not celebrate. They were more concerned about silencing a potential threat than about celebrating a man whose life was changed. These guys said, it's impossible for us not to speak about what we have seen and heard. This is translated a lot of different ways in, in different uh, your different Bibles. But it all means basically the same thing. It's a double negative. We can't not which means we, can, I, we, can, we have to. We, we can. We must, in fact. We have to speak about what we have seen and heard. They had to do it. We have to tell people. We cannot be quiet, they said. Now, I want us to be encouraged by two things as we reflect again and put some of these things into ap, like thoughts of application. Uh, the first thing is, you may never go to Bible college. You may never attend seminary, 
You may never get a formal education in the scripture. Those things are good. And if God leads you to do that, the church and you and your family will be better off for it. And yet he may not call all of us to do that. If that's the case, please understand that God can and will use Christians who are dedicated to him. And that doesn't matter if you were saved last week or if you were saved 50 years ago or beyond. If you're dedicated to the Lord and you put your faith in him as these early Christians were doing here, he's going to use you. Who knows the kind of audience that you might have? Now, certainly God uses people with PhDs and doctorates and all of these things, but he often works through just regular folks. And you never know who you might speak to. As Caleb encouraged us in Sunday school this morning, don't fear, don't shrink back from speaking truth from the word of God or speaking truth about your savior. In fact, I'd encourage you get to know Jesus better and better and better and you'll be given boldness to speak as these Christians did. Second thing I want you to be encouraged with this morning is if there ever comes a time where God's people are forced to choose who to obey, God or man, Please understand and know that you are never alone when you choose to go with God. In our time uh, studying the Puritans in our last two small group semesters, we talked about one named John Bunyan. You guys might have heard that name if if you weren't involved in our study. John Bunyan is a guy who wrote the famous work, The Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, What you might not know is that he wrote most of The Pilgrim's Progress in prison. He was preaching the gospel without King Charles II's permission. And so he was thrown in jail. In 1659, he was put in prison and spent 12 and a half years in prison with, interestingly, only two books. Now, there may have been some that came later on, but he went in with two books, the Bible and Fox's Book of Martyrs. So he was in prison for 12 and a half years. He was released in 1672. He was imprisoned again for two more years. In 1675, for the same reason, and that prison stint is where he began to write The Pilgrim's Progress. He'd lain in prison for many years, and at some of those moments throughout in that, those 12 and a half and then the two-year time frame, the governing authority from King Charles II would come and they'd say, John, we'll let you out, but you must promise to not preach again. They say, look, there are regular clergymen. What do you, as a tinker, have to do with preaching? The king has his guys where he wants them. You don't need to worry about this. What do you, you're not equipped for this task anyway. You're not really a preacher. Well, to this, John Bunyan boldly replied. He says, look, if you let me out of prison today, I will preach again tomorrow by the grace of God. They went on and they, they said, well, look, just give that up. Stop it. You're not equipped for it. You don't need to do that. Just don't preach anymore and we'll let you out. And he, he's famous for saying this. You may have heard this quote from him before. He said, if I lie in jail till the moss grows on my eyelids, I will never conceal the truth which God has taught me. It's probably been said in most every generation since. But now is the time for Christians and followers of Christ all over the world to respond in godly boldness to be more concerned with what God thinks than what society thinks, to be more in love with Jesus than with the things of this world. One more quote from John Bunyan. 
He says this, if my life is fruitless, it doesn't matter who praises me. And if my life is faithful, it doesn't matter who criticizes me. If we believe that the name of Jesus is as powerful as what the book of Acts portrays, as what these early Christians believed, we're not going to shrink back in fear, are we? We're going to say, like John Bunyan, we're going to say, I'll rot in this prison till the moss covers my eyes before I'll refuse to talk of Jesus. Jesus explained to his followers in John 16, 33, he said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We sang it already. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. This is why we have nothing to fear, but guys, this is also why we cannot be silent. So when we're given the opportunity, when the Spirit prompts us, don't shrink back. Imagine Peter and John. Imagine John Bunyan in prison. Understand and be reminded, when you go with God, you're never alone. Let's pray. Lord, I, my heart is heavy for pastors in, in Israel, in Palestine, in Haiti, in Romania, in Vanuatu, in Africa. Pastors and Christians in hard places in North and South America. Some of them, Lord, are, are in the same boat. The governing authority is telling them, you can't keep doing this. If you value your life, your family, everything you love, you can't keep preaching. You need to be silent. Lord, I would pray that you would give them extraordinary boldness to continue preaching the mysteries of Christ, the mysteries of the gospel. Paul instructs the Ephesian church to do that in the last chapter. He says, pray with all supplication that I might speak boldly the mysteries of the gospel. When I open my mouth, it would be boldness as I ought to speak. Lord, we ought to speak the same so that our prayer is the same. Give my brothers and sisters around the world and especially here, Lord, in whatever context and arena they're in, whenever they're having the opportunity to shrink back and be quiet or to respectfully oppose evil authority, and speak truth, and speak the name of Jesus, Lord, I pray that they would with joy relish the opportunity, and with confidence preach with boldness, not to not to goad anyone, not to upset anyone on purpose, Lord, but instead just to be faithful to the message that has changed our lives, that we want others to hear, and it would change theirs as well. Lord, we have nothing to fear when we fear you. We have nothing to fear in this world because Jesus has overcome the world, and so I pray in his name, that we would go out with boldness and speak truth to the world. And Lord, if you've spoken that truth to our hearts today, maybe for the first time we're seeing our need for Jesus to save us, to forgive us from our sin. Lord, remind us too that when we confess our sins, when we turn to him in repentance and faith, he is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so I pray that that would be the case for our hearts today, hearts in this room and listening today, that you might be cleansing us from unrighteousness, that it might be nailed to the cross with Christ, that we bear it no more and we'll say praise the Lord. Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen.